Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the important contributions of Ernesto Bozzano, an Italian scholar who is certainly one of the strongest scholarly advocates for the hypothesis that the human sur spirit survives bodily death. My guest is Carlos Alvarado, who is probably one of the foremost, if not the foremost, living historian of psychical research. Carlos is also the author of an important new book about Charles Richet, a Nobel laureate psychical researcher who was a contemporary of Bozano. Once again, this is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Carlos. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Well, it's a pleasure being here. Today, we're going to talk about Ernesto Bozzano, who was uh, one of the great advocates for spiritualism, as well as a, a scholar uh, in Italy. He died in uh, 1943, and I suppose prior to his death, many people feel he was uh, the most important psychical researcher in Italy. Yes, he was extremely influential in, uh, in Italy, particularly among those that believe in survival of bodily death. He, he had a lot of interaction with everyone in Italy in, involved on the subject, but he also had a lot of differences of opinion, some of them quite strong with uh, other people, especially those that were trained in the sciences, in, in or medicine, psychiatry, and so forth. I, I suppose uh, one of his both disadvantages and advantages is the fact that he he didn't have a formal education as many other people in the field have had. Yes, I I think that's true. That that can be an advantage and a disadvantage on the positive side. I think it kept his mind open. You know, he, he, he did not form his mind about ideas such as the independence of the mind and the brain and things of that sort. Like so many people at the time that were trained in physiology or in medicine in general, that was, that was the way they, they just were taught how to think about the human mind. So that, that was good for him. On the other side, he also lacked uh, training in science and uh, and that also some people have speculated that made him a little dogmatic in some of his conclusions. I understand, however, he, he started his uh, scholarly career as a materialist. Yes, when he started, he he really did not believe in, in anything spiritual and anything beyond the physical world. And uh, as he described, you know, his own development, he, he became convinced of psychic phenomena and of spirituality through the study of the literature and other things. One, one of the things that happened to him was that through a medium, he, he had an encounter, he believed, with his dead mother. 
And, uh, and that was a, a factor that also affected him. So that experience together with reading and starting to study about telepathy, apparitions, and all kinds of other phenomena, especially the phenomena of mediumship, led him to think that, that he was wrong in what he had believed before. And then he changed and he never went back. You know, he, he became all, all through his life. He was a very strong defender of the idea of spirit agency to explain psychic phenomena and of the concept of survival of bodily death. That's what he's best known for as a strong defender of survival of bodily death. Now, I think one of the important reasons that we're having this conversation today is is that many people in the English-speaking world are unfamiliar with uh, a lot of research, important research, that's taken place elsewhere. Uh, and uh, this is a, a man who was extremely prolific. I, I read at one point he had something like 15,000 pages uh, that he's written that would fill 50 volumes. That is true. He, he wrote a lot of articles, and those articles, many of them became books, and the books had several editions. So, so he, he started, you know, the first edition, and then a few years later, he felt that he had more cases, say, cases about hauntings. He, he found new cases, like 30, 40 new cases, so that was a second edition, and later on, when he had more cases, <laughs> a third edition will appear. So, you know, he, yeah, he was extremely prolific. Most of it remained in Italian and French. Those, those were the, the main, the main languages that he, I don't think he ever wrote anything in English. He was translated into English. There are just very few books in English. And a few articles appear in the spiritualist literature, mainly in in the UK. But but he never wrote, as far as I know, directly into English. But I, I think it's fair to say he was very conversant with a, a large body of literature uh, written in many different languages, of which uh, we here in the United States uh, have very little awareness. Yeah, that, that is true, and that, that was the case that when he was living, and also also today, it is unfortunate that the language barrier still is a problem. You know, not only in parapsychology, but in you know so many other subjects uh, that we're interested in. Uh, since he could read, and in almost any all the main languages, in, including English. And he also had access to the literature, so he was subscribed to everything that came from England, from the United States, from other places. And as he became known, all the spiritualist journals around will send him uh, copies of their journals because they wanted to get articles <laughs> for their own publications to publish. So he, he really had a lot of the sources available at his disposal. And uh, one thing that also helped him greatly was that he had the time to do it. He, he for most of his life, uh, he had nothing else to do but to read about psychic phenomena and to write about psychic phenomena. In fact, he even rarely traveled too far away from the place uh, from where he lived in Italy. And uh, he was also lucky that 
in the early, about 1921, he moved uh, to live in a, in a big villa that was owned by a brother of his that was a rich man. And basically he moved there and he, he was kept there just, just to, to read and write. His brother paid all his living expenses. I assume uh, that when he needed books and he needed to buy something, I assume the brother also helped him with that because, you know, he he formed a really big library from all around the world, and that library still survives today in, in Bologna, in Italy. And uh, it's, it's very carefully kept uh, today and very well classified, a computer catalog and, you know, with all, all the modern stuff that Bozzano did not have at his hand. And he just used all that time and resources to write and write and read. One of the things he was known among his friends, and now we know because some people have been writing about him, was that every time he would read articles or books, he kind of would make his own index of cases and arguments. So if it was a particular interested case of telepathy, he, he would write saying interesting case of telepathy about this, about that. And over the years, he accumulated thousands of annotations like that. And those annotations are, are still being useful because they were all put into a computer to form a big index of the literature. And now uh, you, you can really, if you have access, you know, to the place where they keep his books and his materials, you can, you can use that as an index of the, to find cases and ideas from the literature roughly before 1940. In, in a way, he reminds me of Charles Fort in, in the sense that he's looking at phenomena that most even psychical researchers tended to uh, ignore, or maybe there are only very few cases. Um, for example, I saw that he published a, uh, a study that included 35 cases of xenoglossy. I didn't even know there were that many. <laughs> Yes, he, he, he located cases all through the, through the spiritualist and spiritist literature, especially coming from Italy and France. And, uh, and he would then classify them because that was one of the things he was also very well known about classifying the phenomena. He would get like cases of xenoglossy and he will put them in different chapters. And those cases that were spontaneously produced. Or those cases that came through mediums, or that came in in, in different other ways, you know. And uh, in his books, you find cases like like that, like Sinoglossy, and he, he just prepares a, a general description of the case and the argument, and then he presents the case in full. So each has a lot of cases, and is very useful in that way to us now. To, to find cases or examples of phenomena of that sort. And he focused on things uh, like uh, mists that appear around uh, people when they're dying, things that are almost never discussed in the literature of psychical research, but he accumulated uh, a great deal of information about these things. That is true. He has so many cases that uh, he was trying to look for patterns in, inside the cases, things that will repeat themselves or things that will appear sometimes, but not always. And he tried to make sense of that. Uh, this this uh, phenomenon about the mists, he included that inside a general category he called bilocation. 
Now, bilocation is a term that comes to us mainly from the literature of the saints, especially the one that we know better is the Catholic saints when a saint was in one place physically, but was seen at a different location, his image appeared in another place. But Sano used the term bilocation to mean the projection of an etheric body from the physical body. But inside bilocation, he had a lot of different phenomena. One of them were these mists that come out from the body when someone is dying. And people sometimes around it will see it emerging from the body. No, it's not always a, a mist. Sometimes it's a whole spirit body. Other times it's a globe of light. He has amazing examples of that in, in, that he presents, you know, in great detail. He also included in, in, in his articles and books on this, on bilocation, cases of out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, uh, cases of autoscopy, you know, when you see a phantom of yourself, you look up and you see a replica of yourself in front of you. That's, that is considered a, a syndrome in psychiatry and is considered uh, to today to be a pathological experience. But Botsano said, no, this is not pathological. This is a projection of an etheric body that the person is seeing, usually keeping their consciousness in the physical body. So he put all of those things together and he argued that all of those phenomena, they look different, but they represented the same phenomena. They had the same cause underneath. And that was typical of him to argue that a single cause, in this case, the projection of an etheric body, accounted for different manifestations. He looked at things like phantom limbs, for example. Yes, he included those type of experiences there uh, also. The thing is, his, his writings of bilocation never circulated much in the English-speaking world. Uh, I, have, I have seen accounts of it in, in a spiritualist journal from England called Light, a very, very well-known uh, journal around 1911, 1912. But in general... You know, most of that stuff remain in French and in Italian. So a lot of ideas on this particular phenomena, you know, were, were, were not discussed uh, widely around and, and are unknown today to uh, a lot of people. I, I wrote an article for the Journal of Near-Death Studies just about bilocation in, in Botsano's work. And uh, it took great pleasure in rescuing that because, you know, he really put a lot of work and his cases are so fascinating that I think they deserve to be better known. Mm -hmm. He drew upon uh, the literature uh, published in various spiritualist journals, amongst uh, other sources. And, and also, I gather, he looked at uh, medical records and, and some of the literature from mesmerism and hypnosis. Yeah, that's true. He, al he also was conversing with hypnosis and mesmerism. Basically, almost anything related to psychic phenomena, he seemed to have access to. And, and he used it in, in many different ways, always to maintain the general point that the human spirit was real, that all, all these phenomena were, the, were produced by the human spirit and as such, they indicated that we have a non-physical component that will survive bodily death. And he put together everything from clairvoyance, premonitions, uh, xenoglossy, 
uh, all kinds of, um, almost any type of psychic phenomena you can think, he conceptualizing like that. So mm -hmm. they, they, he had that common thread, but inside each of the phenomena, there is an incredible richness that I will say that even to this day, very few people have worked in trying to, to illustrate all these features of the phenomena, all the different variations of apparitions, of, of telepathic messages, of, of almost any phenomena you can think about. And that's one of the things that have always interested me greatly about him, that to read him is, is a great experience in, in learning about the variety of psychic phenomena. One one classification of phenomenon I know you mentioned briefly in uh, one of your descriptions of Bozano that I didn't quite understand uh, was called transfiguration, as I recall. Uh, do you know what he meant by that? Yes, transfiguration. I was recently citing a, a, an article. He published a multi-part article in 1934 in Italian on that topic, and that later became a book. Transfiguration is a, considered a phenomenon of physical mediumship and uh, is basically the idea that you are there sitting with a medium in front of you and the facial features of the medium change. So in the, in the best cases, you are looking at the medium and you see that the medium all of a sudden resembles the spirit of someone that, that you knew. You know, your father that is deceased or a brother or something like that. Not, not all the cases are that good. Sometimes the change is just very slight. But there are many variations, you know, and, and he classify all those variations inside the, the seance room context. Very interesting. Uh, and, and again, I presume he attributed this to some type of spiritualistic phenomena. Yeah, he, he believed that all that was directed by intelligences from the other world, you know, the spirits of the disease that basically use the medium to produce the phenomena. He accepted the idea that was very common from, from the 19th century till even till today that the medium will produce, uh, that the spirits were able to use the physical force housed inside the body of the medium. And not only the medium, also of the sitters. There is a lot in the old psychical research literature about how psychic forces were very dynamic and move all around in sense uh, context. And in this case, it was the spirits who were manipulating that to change the features of the, of the medium. In other occasions, uh, it was the same process but to produce materializations outside of the body of the medium. So hands will appear or faces outside of the medium, complete uh, body figures and so forth. Like what we see in the records of, of you know, the mediumship of Didi Hume, El Sapia Palladino, Franek Klosky, many, many of the old uh, physical uh, mediums. Yes, he focused quite a bit on the idea that uh, the psyche or the soul can control matter. He looked at physical phenomena a, a great deal, Th things that uh, people today tend to shy away from. Yeah, that's true. A, a lot of, of the phenomena that, that he explored, like transfiguration, materializations, they're still reported today, but perhaps not as frequently as in the old days, but 
there is a lot of aversion to, you know, get close to that type of phenomena because, first of all, they look weird. They look, sometimes they look ridiculous. They look frightening. They look, and a lot of people don't want to think much about it. But Bozzano and, and many others at the time were fully convinced that physical mediumship and materialization specifically was a real phenomena. And uh, there were too many manifestations to be ignored. What was more controversial among the specialists at the time was the explanation. You know, some of them were like Bozzano, but the spirits are the intelligence behind it. Others will say, yeah, there is intelligence, but it's the medium's intelligence. The unconscious mind of the medium is shaping these figures. And also the beliefs of the circle affect the phenomena. And actually, Bozzano accepted that. He, he wrote about the power of the mind of the medium to, to imprint things outside the body in, a, in, in the so-called ectoplasm, which is, you know, the, the exteriorized uh, force of the medium, but made visible. So he, he believed in that, but what, what he would strongly defend against those that said that he was only the unconscious of the medium was that he would say, yes, sometimes that is true, but there are many other occasions where the spirits of the dead are behind the phenomena. And he gave many reasons, you know, why. And I, I suppose that's the advantage of looking at many, many different cases. So you can find examples that seem to defy the more conventional explanation. Yeah, that is true. And that, that's exactly what he will do, especially when he was criticizing someone. He was very good at finding cases as, saying, well, you know, my opponent, and he will write like that, my opponent here has made an interesting argument, but he forgets all these cases where this happens. And it is a long stretch, he will argue, though, to say that the human mind can explain this, this particular phenomenon. And he will look for features and specific things that he, he believed clearly had to be explained by spirit action. One one thing that really impressed me is that many of his writings uh, seem to precede uh, modern discussions that are still going on along the same lines. I mean, for example, uh, the study of near-death experiences. Many people attribute uh, that whole field to, to Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life. Uh, however, he was writing about it decades before Moody. That is true. He, he was uh, clearly a, a pioneer in that sense. And, uh, he, he had found those things. And, and actually he, and he himself was not really the discoverer of those phenomena because he was taking them from literature that had preceded him. What his big contributions is that he was very good in putting the things together and putting a lot of cases of the same type near death, uh, out of body or, what we call now the shared experiences, which he, he was very interested in things around a deathbed that the, the people that are quite well and standing around someone that is dying, they will see things or they will hear things, things like music or voices or he, he, he was, he was very interested in that type of thing. And uh, unfortunately, he's forgotten now and mo mostly everyone that writes today about those topics, they, they never, Side Botsano. In fact, even books about survival of death in general, 
very few of the modern books mention uh, Bolsano. And I'm not saying that they have to agree with him, but, you know, I think when you're discussing a topic, it is useful to know what happened before. And if you're going to disagree with an explanation, you need to know what a particular author has been saying in order to construct your own argument. In fact, I believe in his own lifetime, many uh, famous scholars, we discussed in a previous interview, Charles Richet, the Nobel laureate uh, in uh, physiology, disagreed with Bozzano about his interpretations, but often cited him because of his knowledge of uh, unusual cases. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Richet was very, for most of his life, he was at first very skeptical and later perhaps more ambivalent, but he was always impressed by Bolzano's writing. And he would always praise the man in his own writing, saying Bolzano is a very learned man and he has done a lot to bring these cases together. And uh, and Richet will say that some of the cases of the, of the Bolzano many times brought him close to a belief. In fact, Bolzano tended to believe that he had finally had convinced Richer because by the end of his life, Richer was talking in a more positive way about survival, not only from Bolzano, but also the influence of others like Oliver Lodge, the physicist from England. And he wrote to both Lodge and Bolzano and basically told them that because of their writings, he now had come much closer much closer conceptually to their spiritistic uh, views. But he never committed himself completely to survival. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of difficult. I think what happened there is the these things, you know, you spend all your life thinking in a particular way, and it's so hard to change your mind sometimes, especially for someone like Richet that was training physiology and uh, believed, you know, that it was the nerves, the bodies, the, the human body that, that really form our consciousness to really abandon that look and say that there is something more. Even when he accepted the psychic phenomena and saw them right in front of, of him many times, I, I think it was too difficult, too painful for him to commit himself. But certainly Bolzano had a great influence in him and informed him of a lot of good cases that Richet cited uh, through his life in many of his writings. I, I know Bozano paid attention, for example, to cases of, of people who seemed to function quite normally, uh, but their brains were terribly damaged. Yes, he, he wrote about that, and, and that was one of the arguments that he used to, to say that it's not only the brain, you know, that the brain, of course, is important, is, but the brain was an instrument that the spirit will use. And, uh, of course, if the brain is damaged, it's like a pianist, you know, having a piano that is half destroyed. They can barely produce any musical notes, but that doesn't mean that the pianist is not sitting there and doesn't have the talent in him to produce good music. In this case, the spirit was there, conscious. Uh, he, he could communicate, but in this case, if a brain was damaged, it could be difficult to do so. But he said in some cases, the spirit found a way. He didn't specify exactly how. Uh, today, maybe people will say that there are other neuropaths in the brain that 
you know, started functioning or I, I really cannot say, but he will say that sometimes the spirit find a way and will manifest even in cases that where people had accidents and, and their brain wants to destroy that they still have some memory, they still have consciousness and so forth. And he put that together with other phenomena and again defended once again the, the concept that consciousness was completely independent of, of the physical body. One of the uh, main arguments that he uh, contested was was the notion that the phenomenon produced in seances or that would uh, might support spiritualism were really produced uh, by the, the living people, what we call living agent psi, rather than uh, the spiritistic phenomena. It was very critical of those that wanted to reduce all the veridical phenomena of mediumship or, or of apparitions or whatever phenomena, those I wanted to reduce it only to the ESP powers of, or, or other types of powers of the living person. I mean, he accepted that, but he says that that was not all the story. But he also used other, other interesting arguments. One of them is he, he liked to talk about animism and spiritism. Spiritism being discarnate agency, the spirit. Animism such so term that he, he, anthropologists use it in a slightly different way, but he and others in psychic research use it to refer to the psychic powers of living beings. So, you know, your own ESP abilities instead of a spirit communication, that, that type of thing. But what he will say is, or was, that, that this, uh, this contrast in itself, it was a false argument because it said, that underlying all the phenomena from the living and from the dead was the spirit of human beings. And what we had was a different of context. In animism, we will see the spirit manifesting while it was in the human body where you were alive. But this carnate phenomena was the same spirit that has survived death using its own powers. But in reality, it was the same telepathy, the same telekinesis, the same phenomenon. The, the guiding intelligence was just the same. So for him, he will say animism proves spiritism. And if you accept spiritism, you have to accept animism as well. So for him, it was like a circle, you know, all together. And he said that it, it did not make that those that accepted only animism were denying the actual nature of, of living human beings. That's something that comes all through his writings, and he was always uh, defending you know, that, that argument. You, you know, I find that a very convincing argument, personally. Uh, if, if you accept extrasensory perception in the first place amongst living people, it's hard to deny the possibility that consciousness could exist completely independently of a, of a physical body. Uh, and I understand that this unique distinction between animism and spiritism was first uh, promulgated by a Russian researcher, Aksakov, I, I believe is the name. Again, one of those figures that has been forgotten, he, he wrote a book that first appeared in German called Animism and Spiritism. And it was translated into French, and I think that's the, probably the edition that, that Bolzano read. And it's also in Spanish, I think in a few other languages. 
And basically, there was a fascinating big book that uh, was was kind of in reply in reply to someone was that was trying to defend only the animistic uh, position. But one of the points that he makes is that, that there are animistic phenomena, there's spiritistic, and that you have to see them uh, all together. If you separate them, you are not seeing the whole picture, and that whole picture. It's the same for Bozzano and Aksakov was the the confluence of, of both, you know, the dead and the living. And that when they get together, they form a whole that is very difficult to conceptualize other than by non-physical assumptions. To, to me, this is a very sophisticated uh, approach. And uh, I think it's a shame that it, it's sort of been forgotten uh, to a large degree. Uh, another uh, area that um, Bozzano focused on was uh, what he called transcendental music. Oh, yes. That's, that, that was a fascinating area that he did it first in articles and then in, in, in longer monographs. I think the last one came out in around 1943. Transcendental music were musical manifestations, most of which he believed were spirit cause. The, he starts the book with mediums that produce music in different ways. Some of them are mediums that just get possessed by a spirit. They sit on the piano and they produce music or they sing or they grab a violin and they produce it like that. Others are more di what he called direct music. Basically the idea that in the seance room out of from invisible speakers, God knows where, <laughs> you know, music will be heard in the seance room. But it was in the context of the mediumistic seance. He, he started his discussion with that. And then he moved on to all kinds of, of unusual uh, musical manifestations, some that seem to be telepathic, you know, from one person to another. The most interesting for him were those associated with death. So uh, around a deathbed, Instead of people seeing a mist coming out from the body, they will hear music all around and everyone will go around and could not say, where is the music coming from? And generally was described as extremely beautiful music, celestial music, you know, was a way in which a lot of people describe it. So that, that, that really for him was very important. And he also laid great stress in those cases where more than one person around the deathbed had the same experience, collective cases, which he did. He also wrote a lot about collective apparitions and other phenomena. Then he talked about hauntings in haunted houses, you know, music being heard or cases. Some cases were not related to death, but most were. And some of them were after the death, like two, three days after in the room where the person had died, this mysterious music will appear. So he put all of those uh, cases uh, together and uh, he, he did not have an explanation for the actual music. You know, if it was physically heard or mentally heard, I think he leaned more that it was a like a telepathic effect on, on each of the persons uh, present. But he never discussed actually, well, what he said was that he believed that it had to be a spirit origin because it was too far-fetched to think that telepathy from the living could cause that phenomena in such a consistent way. And uh, 
you know, that, that's a phenomenon that has been very little explored. In recent times, Scott Rogo had an, an interest in that. He produced two books about, about transcendental music, and he followed a very similar approach to Bozzano. In fact, he gives credit to Bozzano and, uh, and tries to, to basically use some of the same sources that Bolzano cited. But other than him, almost no one has done much. And part of it is that, you know, it's a difficult a phenomenon. It's not so easy to find. It's not that common. We, we don't know how, how common it is. That, that would be a modern research question that, that someone, you know, could, could get into. But that's one of, one of the things I like about Bolzano. He left many un unanswered questions like that, that seems to me that if we know what he did, and perhaps we could use that information to generate hypotheses to do current research. Even if you would not accept everything he said, the idea is there that these cases exist and we could explore them in more detail to see how common they are, in what context they happen, and try to replicate the patterns that he said he found over the years. I know, I know one of the most interesting claims he made had to do with uh, cases of hauntings and poltergeists where uh, he noted that there was a high preponderance of deaths that had taken place, sometimes violent deaths, at, at those locations. That is true. Yeah, he found that, that many cases were associated with violent death. Uh, he went and analyzed a lot of different cases. Unfortunately, he never left to that list of which cases were the ones that he analyzed for that. Because in his book about hauntings, he a book that went through many different editions and is still being reprinted in, in France and I think also in, in Italy. Uh, he, he presents many cases, but not all of them, because he talks about hundreds of cases, and the book doesn't have hundreds. So obviously, you know, he must have had a notebook or some place where he kept the cases. But uh, he, he really did, uh, and remember, he was doing this without computers. So, so this man was sitting there making counts, you know, with sticks for one case or this, one case for that. He must have taking him a, a lot of time, even working full-time as he was. But yeah, he certainly ana analyzed hauntings in many different ways and concluded that things like, like violent deaths being associated with the place were more consistent with the idea that there was a spirit influence. Another uh, thing that he considered, and he has a whole chapter in his book about hauntings, that he called infestation. He used that word in his original writings. The, the idea that, that a house or a place can be infested, like can be possessed, like, like if there were germs approaching the place. But in this case, there were spirits. Also, he did not claim they were malignant. It's just that that's, that's an old uh, word that was uh, used in, in, in Italy. Anyhow, he... He classified the cases according to those that seem intelligent, but also those that seem repetitive. And when they were repetitive, he said, those cases, and he found that those were the cases that were non -in seemingly non-intelligent. That's where he said the psychometric hypothesis of hauntings would apply. That's an idea that comes from the 19th century. He did not create. And that's the idea that if something happens in a place, it gets imprinted 
in the atmosphere, in, in a psychic ether. People have discovered it in different ways, but events getting printed around, and years later, someone comes into the room that has some psychic ability, and he's basically reading that, like, like reading a tape, uh, a recording of some sort. And, uh, and so you hear things, you see figures, you, you see, see phenomena, and uh, everything disappears, and it looks really ghostly and strange. But in reality, if you accept, accept the psychometry hypothesis, there is nothing conscious there. There is not, no spirit there is trying to communicate. It's just an imprint from the past. And he believed in psychometry. He, he had his own uh, general study of psychometry in which he knew all that type of literature. But he said that, that there were very, very few cases that he could find. And he really could support that. Well, he considered that. He also considered telepathy between the living and the... Because, again, also he defended spirit action. He also accepted that the living could produce a lot of the phenomena. He even had uh, articles and, and a few books or monographs that he likes like to call them that were about mediumistic communications from the living. You know, and there are many cases like that. Someone that is sleeping in a distant place, and it appears through a seance in another town. And he collected cases like that. And it's interesting. There are many cases, not as many as the usual communication in a seance, but there were many. And he put them together and argued that, yeah, this, this was real, and what we see here is the spirit of the living person is communicating like the spirit of a deceased person, which is nothing extraordinary in his view, because we're talking about spirits to start with. So spirit from the dead, spirit from the living, they both had the ability to communicate. And again, comes to the same point, you know, I was discussing before. So... So, and, and, and the thing is, he connects the phenomena. That's one thing that when you're reading about hunting, psychometry, the telepathy, apparition, he always makes reference also to other phenomena. And everything is intertwined. That's something that I really enjoy of his work, that there's many interactions of variables in, uh, in, in these cases. And all this is qualitative. You know, he rarely quantified anything. He had some numbers and percents of cases here and there, but his whole thing is description, the quality of the event and how it could stay the same or vary in a particular context. And then he tried to find the reason for that. That basically is his life work. Uh, you know, one phenomenon that I found interesting in uh, reviewing the material uh, you sent me about him was uh, the idea that at the moment of death or around the time when a person dies, their picture might fall off the wall. Yes. Yes. He, he talked about telekinetic phenomena around the moment of death. And... Uh, Again, he was convinced that many of these cases were spirit action, that someone had died and their consciousness, their spirit, basically caused uh, a portrait to fall or, or clock stopping. That's, that's a very old and, and common one, that the clock will stop and at the time when the person died. And he was able to find many cases. And when he revised his monograph from the, you know, he, I think he wrote at first in the 20s 
about that phenomenon until his last publication appeared in 1948, some years after he died, because he left a few monographs that he did not finish. And he, he had a very good friend and disciple that will will gather all of those things and started publishing them after he died in 1943. So in 48 is the, la the last uh, version of, of that story. And basically it's the same argument with, with more cases. You know, he, he kept finding cases. Remember what I was saying about him taking notes and all that. So he accumulated 25, 30 more cases, sometimes more. So he, I guess he thought, hmm, this is time for another edition. And out will the book come. And the argument really never changed so much or, or at all. What changed was the number and quality of the cases. He, he also, uh, I gather, was developing something of a, a philosophy integrating spiritualism with an idea of uh, evolution. Yes. Yeah, from the very beginning, he was interested in evolution. Uh, one of the figures that influenced him greatly was Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer was, has been described as a, an anthropologist, a biologist, sociologist, you know, in the early 19th century, a, a lot of these distinctions of what you were, you know, your profession really do not apply that well. But he wrote about humankind, about history, about evolution. And he was a firm believer in evolution and also of classifying facts, which is something that Bolsano absorbed from him and never abandoned. Um, Bolsano was a firm believer in evolution, but I, as he got into the material with psychic phenomena, and I think he went here, he was greatly influenced by Frederick Myers, was uh, the idea that biological evolution certainly happens, but it doesn't affect our spiritual nature. So it affects our physical body, things of that sort, but our spirit really doesn't get touched by that. Our spirit is is always there on touch by a lot of these uh, forces and uh, it can always manifest and certainly there may be an interaction like like myers will argue that communication between a spiritual and a physical world world may be easier because evolution has made some people more sensitive than others but that doesn't mean that you're going to reduce the spirit to biological evolution it means that something that is taking place in this level down here allows the spirit to come and use it and uh, as an instrument and communicate and that's that was Botsano's ideas as, as was Myers and both of them ba basically believed that psychic phenomena were always present with us being part of our spirit and that most of the manifestations that we saw in our world here were either accidental or could not be completely controlled because the source, the human spirit, was really not designed for acting at this plane. It was designed to act at the spiritual level and after death in whatever realm we will end with. And Bozzano firmly believed that, as Myers did, you know, that it wasn't then that other realm that telepathy and all these other uh, phenomena will be more useful to interact in spirit with spirit and, and so forth. 
And Bolzano mm-hmm. never developed that in great detail, but it was very clear that he that he believed in, in that. Uh, did he also have some idea of uh, cosmic evolution that uh, there was, a, I, I think I gathered from some of the writings, a, a sense that maybe there was a separate track of spiritual evolution independent of biological evolution? Yes, I, I would say that he, that Bolsano, believed in that, that we continue to develop uh, spiritually and uh, and that that's completely different from uh, biological evolution. He, if, since he did not have access directly, you know, to, to that kind of source of material, what he used were mediumistic communications and the teachings of the spirits and so forth, which some people today still uh, focus on that. And, uh, of course, he, he didn't have a lot of details about it, but he, he believed that, that the our evolution will certainly uh, continue. He was not, Bolsano was not a typical uh, spiritist. You know, he was not a, like Alan Kardec, although he was open to the idea of reincarnation. He was, uh, there, there were differences, you know, he was much more empirical than, than Alan Kardec was, and also like many other spiritists were in Bolsano's era, because both Bolsano used teachings from the spirits but only in a small part of his work. Most of it came from collections, you know, cases of apparitions, telepathy, hauntings, and, and the like. He tried to be empirical he tried, because he was trying, yeah, I would say, perhaps to defeat materialistic science using their own instrumentation, their own, their own approach. And I think he took great pride in that, you know, that, that, that's what he was doing. Well, Carlos Alvarado, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your passion of this very significant person uh, from another culture. Uh, I'm so glad to be able to share this with our English-speaking audience. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, the pleasure has been mine. As you can tell, I really enjoy talking about these things, and Bozzano is a personal favorite. So for me, it's a great opportunity to reach an audience Uh, with all this information. Well, I look forward to future discussions, Carlos. So do I. Thank you. Thank you.